I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. There's an argument that goes, the reason why some African-Americans can't seem to get along with African immigrants is that they feel as though the immigrants are respected more than they are, while simultaneously benefiting from reparations meant to go towards those who were descendants of slavery. This argument even led to some African-Americans forming a movement known as the American Descendants of Slavery to protest for their just claims on America's promises. Do you know why African immigrants seem to benefit from reparations made for African-Americans? It's because when all of us got to America, we were referred to as black. It didn't matter whether some came from Ghana and others came from the Caribbean. The American society at large recognizes African immigrants as purely black. This means that any policy or benefit that is made for black Americans will benefit an African immigrant with citizenship. In other words, African immigrants don't arrive in America making demands and seeking to exploit the system. However, because the system recognizes African immigrants with citizenship as black Americans, Immigrants benefit from all the opportunities afforded to African-Americans who are also seen as purely black. This is the same across the board. When a European immigrant is granted citizenship, they receive the same benefits awarded to white Americans. Why? Because the system has broadly defined the American population as being either white or black. Jude Akpunku Jr., The Dangers of a Single Story. This is Iron Mike Stedman, and you're listening to Confessions of a Native Son, a black veteran's perspectives on race, culture, and business. Since before I was born, black Americans have been fighting for reparations from the federal government to correct the horrors of slavery. Today, in the aftermath of George Floyd, the conversation consistently finds itself within the mainstream media. One of the most popular debates took place on the floors of Congress in 2019 when a young, black, conservative intellectual by the name of Coleman Hughes debated against the fiery American author and voice of the culture, Tallahassee Coates. Some would argue that African Americans have already received reparations in the form of affirmative action, government set-asides, and the countless other programs available specifically for African Americans. Unfortunately, what many of our nation's attempts fail to realize is the utter complexity of race amongst native-born African-Americans and those of African immigrants. In 2018, I received a text message from a friend of mine who was attending Harvard Business School. He informed me that almost 80 to 90% of his fellow black peers were African immigrants. This observation struck a nerve with me as it highlighted a fundamental weakness of our current diversity initiatives across our country and that the biggest benefits of affirmative action and other diversity inclusion initiatives are not American descendants of slavery, but those of immigrants. If the fundamental purpose of these programs is to close the education and wealth gap for American descendants of slavery, then they have failed. This is a difficult conversation to have, especially for those of us who hold the diaspora in utter reverence, while simultaneously acknowledging our own inferiority in the eyes of the American system and those of our immigrant brethren. To discuss this issue with me, I invited on the podcast my fraternity brother and fellow Naval Academy graduate, J. 
Jude Akapunku Jr., author of The Dangers of a Single Story, Uncovering Stereotypical Biases Between African Immigrants and African Americans. Originally raised in Nigeria before eventually immigrating to the U.S., Jude learned to walk a fine line both as an African immigrant and an African American, experiencing firsthand the stereotypes found on both sides of the aisle, as well as the conversations the public doesn't want to talk about. To be honest, the book is worthy of an episode on its own. But in the meantime, I figured who better discuss such a controversial topic than the author of the book himself. This is a free-flowing exchange between two brothers and military officers about a complex topic that you won't find anywhere else. As always, I appreciate you for sharing your time with me, and I hope you enjoy the following show. And we are live. What's going on, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to another edition of my show. I got the honor and privilege of sitting down today with one of my frat brothers, Jude Akapunku Jr., author of The Dangers of a Single Story, Uncovering Stereotypical Biases Between African African Immigrants and African Americans. In addition to being a published author, he's also a, a Naval officer, Naval Academy graduate, and currently going to school uh, at Stanford where he's getting his master's in, is it public administration? Public policy. Sorry, public policy. Anyways, welcome to the platform, Jude. What's going on, bro? Hey, how you doing, Mike? Um, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate this opportunity to, you know, sit here and, and, and go over some some topics with regards to my book and also with regards to the African-American community and the African community at large. Um, I really appreciate this opportunity, man. Man, I want to say, man, I'm proud of you, bro. You know, it's crazy. We go to college and, uh, you know, me and you graduated at different times, right? I'm a little bit older than you. Um, and so we have a lot of gaps between when we spent time around each other. I think like the last time I saw you, you were just graduating. Yeah. Uh, but for me to like find out that like you wrote a book, you're at Stanford. I was like, yo, man, I was slightly jealous, you know, because I've been talking about writing a book forever. And then when I saw you actually do it and you self-published it, I was like, man, let me reach out to this brother. Let me get him on the platform, man, to talk about his book. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, last time we, we saw each other, I mean, there's a lot of growth since I've been in the fleet and things I've wanted to do. Um, I, I'm actually done with Stanford. I have my degree. I graduated two months ago. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. So I, I did that concurrently with NPS, got two masters kind of around the same time. I'm glad it worked out that way. Um, and I wrote this book at the same time. This book was inspired by a lot of things that happened at the time, you know, with George Floyd, honestly, I sat there and I thought, what have I as an African immigrant, as an African, you know, what have I done to negatively contribute to the African-American community? What have I done to positively contribute to the African-American community? What have we done? So that's really how this book came about. Man. So I know I just kind of gave a, uh, a high level uh, overview of like some of the stuff you've accomplished, but why don't you just take a moment and just really uh, introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So Judak Poku, I was born in, in Nigeria. I you know, came over here when I was seven years old, started in first grade. My parents, um, Nigerian, I'm not even first generation American, I'm, I'm African. Uh, my dad, he was a, uh, a businessman, started a bank called Hallmark Bank, one of the first banks in Nigeria to really use automated systems. Um, my mom, she's always a uh, very entrepreneur as well. 
um, both of them. So they, they've always instilled things in me in entrepreneurship and, and, you know, working hard. I have seven siblings. Um, I came over here when I was to start the first grade because my parents wanted me to go to school here and, and I guess learn the American American way um, and pursue, I don't want to say pursue the American dream, but sort of get an American education, which, which I think I've done. Um, seven siblings again, last eight. All my siblings in their right are professionals in some sense, lawyers, doctors, um, you have, you name it, you have, you have it within, within my siblings and entrepreneurs, they're all doing great. And so being the last of eight, I decided, Hey, you know, I want to do something different. I want to do this Naval Academy thing. Let me go ahead and, and, and go to the Naval Academy. Right. Did that, went there, average student, played football, uh, had a good time, met some awesome people, um, was honored to be a member of a fraternity, uh, Omega Sci-Fi, which I'm eternally grateful for, um, uh, so after that, again, went to, went to the fleet to serve for a little bit, got the opportunity to go to grad school, got the opportunity to get two masters. And while I was doing that, you know, I wrote a book, a couple of things I do. I have a couple of nonprofits. I create one foundation. I also have a clothing brand change. Um, both of them are nonprofit based. We donate 50% of our proceeds change. And then the Acro One Foundation, building a youth empowerment center in my city in Nigeria. That's our main focus right now. So a couple of things to do. I try to be well-rounded, try to be out in my community, which is Nigeria. And I'm also from Dallas, Texas. Try to be in that community, Dallas. I plan to go back here, there after I leave this tour here in, in the Middle East and, and try to impact and grow my community as well. Very community-oriented, very community-centric. Um, and those are things that I want to do is just really pour into community. Do you think you're an overachiever? Would you describe yourself as an overachiever? No, not at all. You should, you should be my siblings. My siblings are overachievers. They, it's ridiculous um, what they've accomplished in their short time. And it comes from my father. You know, my father had more wealth. Is not, I guess, you don't equate success with wealth with money you have. My dad, by the time he was 25 years old, he had more money than I would ever have. And he didn't go to school, no formal education, nothing. He just had a will to win and a grind. And you think about somebody who didn't go to school and he started a bank with his friends. How is that possible? So I always had that in me. I always had it in me. I always knew that you could always do more. You should always do more. If God, I'm religious, if God has blessed you with some tools some gifts, don't just sit there and, and sit on them and just be lazy. You got to let the world have it. What I find fascinating about you AK is I didn't know you were African prince, <laughs> literally. And the fact that you chose to go to a place like the Naval Academy and serve really when you didn't have to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by that. Yeah, man, to whom much is given, much is expected. It's an honor for me to serve in the United States military, first and foremost. I mean, I came to this country, uh, you know, it, this country's done a lot for my family. It's done a lot for my dad and his businesses. It's done a lot for us. I mean, all my siblings. And for me coming here and not really knowing what I want to do, I just knew that I didn't want to be a, a doctor. I, I knew I wanted to do something from what my siblings did. And the Naval Academy came and just the chance to serve, the chance to don the cloth, um, no matter for a day or for a million years, just the chance to be in the service and to be of servitude, man, it, it really is worth it. It really was worth it for me. It was a no brainer. Um, so that's why I decided to do that. Man, I forgot what I was going to say, man. I just, I just drew, I just drew a blank, um, but it's all good. But no, man, no, no, seriously, man, like I said, super proud of you and excited to have you on this platform and do a deep dive on this topic of the relationship between, you know, African immigrants and African-Americans. 
Uh, this is something I've been, I want to say, pretty vocal about. Like, yeah. I've just kind of noticed it. And when you wrote a book, that's what I was going to say is, Ak wrote his book. I saw him post his book on Instagram. And I'm just one of those guys that likes to support people. You know what I mean? And so as soon as I saw the book post, I was like, I went on Amazon, I ordered it, and then I read it in like two days. And I told him. Yeah. And he's like, you read the book already, dog? I was like, yeah, man, I ain't playing around. I went and grabbed me some sushi, sat down, read the yeah, book, you know, and uh, just kept it moving. But um, it, I think it's an important book, and I think it's important for us, this younger generation. I'm 34. You're in your 20s. So we ain't too young. Uh, but to have these conversations. Um, and so I guess we'll go ahead and transition and give our confessions. And one of the confessions I have is, you know, I think that a lot of institutions of higher learning, as well as corporate America, are is it ingenuine about the number of African-Americans that they have at their companies or at their institutions, you know, because what it feels like is African immigrants are more favorable. And it appears that African immigrants are um, really the ones benefiting the most from, um, or, you know, affirmative action, hiring practices, you know, invest in black, right? All this stuff that people are trying to do to self-correct uh, for black Americans in the aftermath of slavery and Jim Crow and the group, in my opinion, that benefits the most from it are actually African immigrants. And it's gotten to the point now in my mind where like, honestly, race is like very, very stupid in my opinion. And the reason being is because we can always go down this rabbit hole of almost like one up in each other. And it's like, what is an African-American? What is black, you know? And now we've got the BIPOC, black indigenous people of color. You've got, um, what is it called? Uh, African-American descendants of slavery, right? And so like, there's all these subsections of like black people and we're all basically competing for the same pool of money, support um, and, and resources. And the reason I think it's kind of stupid is because at the end of the day, right? Like I, we can't expect white America to understand all the, um, we can't expect white America to understand all the intricacies of it. You know, like they might look at us and think we're, we are the same. I mean, we're both black, we're both American, but you're Nigerian. You know, you're literally a prince. You know, you come from this background of of basically growing up, having your dad and all that kind of, having your dad, very successful, very successful businessman. Um, but, you know, when you look at like a lot of the elite NBA programs, when you look at a lot of like, you know, corporate America, right? Like I'm willing to bet, man, like you look, 75% of the people in there are more so like African immigrants, you know? And so... That's my confession. My confession is I think we, we I don't think we've self-corrected like we think we have for Jim Crow and for slavery. And it's important to have these conversations um, to bring this kind of stuff to light. Yeah, that that's, I mean, I, I think that's, that's kind of spot on. Um, you said a lot right there and to really get in and dissect it, man. One thing I, that, that popped to me was um, you talked about race for a little bit. And that, race is such a fascinating term for me. Like, where does that word come from? I read this book by uh, um, Black Labor, by White Wealth. Uh, uh, reading it right. Dr. Dr. Claude Anderson. Claude I'm reading it right now. Claude Anderson. So he has another book called The, the African American's uh, Black Man's Financial Plan. Um, that's another good book. He breaks down what race is and how race is such an obsolete term in today's age. Like, it really means nothing. The root of it is horrid, but... Um, that, that's just something that came up that uh, that just, just popped up to me. But man, I, why do you think it is that 
these universities, these institutions go after African-Americans? I know it's your podcast, but why do you think that? Why do you think they look at Africans vice African-Americans? I think y'all are more favorable. How? Why? What do we do? I think um, I think it's a couple things. One is you always want talent. You understand? Like America is like the talent hub. Like just like New York City is a talent hub. There's a reason the best and the brightest tend to try to come to New York City and work at the McKinsey's and the Baines and, you know, all these big financial companies here. Right. I think America wants talent from all over the world, not just African, but Asia, everywhere else. Because like, let's think about it, like brains like you and your family. Right. Um, You know, very smart, very intelligent. Okay. Basically, you know, we're able to pull that talent to benefit America. You know what I mean? Right. Like the doctors and the scientists and all this kind of stuff. It's like America first with the help of immigrants as well. You get what I'm saying? And so I think a lot of these institutions, right, they they want you all to contribute. And so that's why they recruit, you know, black talent from literally like all over the world. And I think there is they get basically there's like some incentives for universities to recruit African-Americans. You know, and the fact of the matter is, right, like it's a lot easier to recruit African immigrants with the test scores and all that kind of stuff, because um, there's there is an achievement gap. So for root cause, sorry, because your root cause analysis. So it's not are they like seeking African-Americans or are they I mean, are they seeking Africans? Are they going out saying we want Africans specifically or the black folks who are coming just happen to be Africans? So if you do analysis, like what is it? Is is it that or is it because Africans are better candidates? I think Africans are better candidates. I think they have higher test scores, higher grades, higher all that kind of stuff. And I think it's like, okay, and this is me talking freely, y'all. All All right. So we see this even in the Marine Corps. All right. So let's say I'm Harvard University. All right. And I need to feel they have a quota of some sort. They're like, we need more black candidates. Okay. And so they have all these black candidates apply. And then you start looking. And you realize that the number of native born African-Americans, right, their test scores and everything else are not as high. Right. We're not performing. There's a lot of reasons why that is um, going back to the public education system and everything else under the sun. OK. And so then instead of addressing the issue that is really at play of like, why is there really this achievement gap? You know, why are these test scores so much lower? Right. It's easier to say, OK, well, as long as we got immigrants, we're good. You know, we check that box. Um, and so we all get thrown in this pool of minorities, blacks, you know, what I mean, African-Americans. Right. Like we're not dissecting it. They're not looking and going too deep. Right. They just they just notice. Right. It just is. And so you guys are able to benefit from that. And the universities are able to benefit from that because they look more diverse than they really are. You know, and that's why. And it took me a long time to get to this point where I'm talking about this stuff now about, cause I know my podcast is a little racy. I get on here and I talk about black culture, black business, all this kind of stuff. But I've realized when trying to articulate this stuff and explain it to other people, just how really stupid it really is. You know, especially for people that don't, that aren't black and don't understand, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it can like make them like scratch their head. Like they can be kind of confused. Um, and to expect other people whether in the federal government or in the university, the private sector, right? Our institution of higher learning to be able to, you know, understand the intricacies of this, right? I don't think it's like, 
I think it's asking a lot, you know what I mean? And I think that's why it's so important for us to take responsibility of our culture, of our education, of our institutions of higher learning, you know, to make sure that, and I'm speaking for native born African-American descendants of slavery, whatever you want to call it, to make sure that we are moving forward, to make sure we're learning the stuff that we need to learn, you know? And so basically to answer your question, I just think that they have trouble filling these slots, right? Except when they bring in other groups. And I don't think it's just you. I think there's Arabs as well. There's a lot of people that can check that box for, for black, for African-American at these institutions of higher learning in corporate America. Um, and I think they, they just, they go after them. Yeah. So the way a lot of a lot of companies quantify when they look for diversity and inclusion, the way they quantify minorities other than white males. So that's a large scope that you're looking for. Right. We got women in there. They throw women in there now, you know. Yeah. But, you know, we come from a, a, a tribe or frat where we literally go to the best universities in the country, in the world. I got frat brothers at Harvard, uh, University of Pennsylvania, you know, Warren Business School, like all these top business schools. Right. And I've talked to them when I started to, to come up with this stuff, this concept in my head. And sure enough, they look at their little class lookbooks, right, of the, the Africans, African-Americans in their class. And like, again, like 75 percent more are you know African immigrants, you know, a lot of Nigerians. And then there's a guy named Coleman Hughes, who is like a black intellectual. He talks about this stuff. And this is where he thinks why he says affirmative action doesn't work. And now I actually start to agree with it because affirmative action, if it was meant to self-correct for slavery and Jim Crow, right? And are we accomplishing that? I don't think so. You know, I think there are other groups that are benefiting from affirmative action more so than the groups that it was set up to, to help. And so that's why when you start bringing government into these racial issues, right? That's why I don't think it's the best because we think we're making progress when we're really not. You know, and I think we view African-Americans as moving, a, like as a, I'm talking about the body, the body politics, like all of us, right? Descendants of slavery, okay? We view us as moving forward, but I think we're stagnant in a lot of areas in terms of the achievement gap, in terms of the wealth gap, right? Yeah. But I don't think people understand that because the numbers are getting influenced, again, by African immigrants, you know, and other groups, Right. So it makes us look like we're more successful as a whole. When you look at the numbers and Claude Anderson talks about that, he calls us black folks. Yep. You know, he straight up calls us black folks. Black folks are a labor class. The only way we, you know, we all we own is sweat. Yeah. You know, basketball, sweat, sweat all this kind of stuff. There's no ownership within the community. And that's a problem. Um, yeah. You know, and we have no power, no power, no influence, no real. You can't have influence that you own something. I have a question, man. You, you talk about affirmative action being a policy there. What policy can you think of that was specifically for African-Americans and only African-Americans? The better, I can name five other policies that were for other racial groups or minority groups. What there is what policy is specifically just germane to African-Americans for the betterment of the Negro? I. I I can't, you know, I can't. And every time there's something that comes up for us, it's like, we got to throw, it's like throwing all this pork in there, right? We got to get white women. We got to get all these other groups in there, you know? And then that's a whole thing. That's a whole nother podcast episode of, you know, we talk about minorities and women, right? And by, by and large, you know, black women still feel like they're getting left behind, yeah. you know, because it's like, as long as, you know, we're letting 
it's just complicated. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Like, I get frustrated just talking about it. There, there, there's um, a lot that's unpacked, man. And just back to the initial statement, these universities and these companies, they're looking for a cookie cutter mode. When they preach of diversity and inclusion, they don't really want that. They want somebody who sounds like them, talks like them, walks like them. That's what they want. I have a cousin, Roger. He's he's over at J.P. Morgan Chase. He was in Nigeria with us. And Roger sounds just like this, man. Like, yeah, awesome, dude. Yeah, I totally get That's like, Roger, you're going to do great at J.P. Morgan because that's what they want. They don't want somebody to go in there, you know, with a beard talking loud, you know, with, Afro, with, with culture. They don't want that. They want, you know, they want the cookie cutter mode. If they can fit it, find a way to shape somebody and put them in that mode, that's perfect. But also the education piece is humongous. I think the African-American community needs to unlearn a lot of things that they've learned. I, oh. I think to go forward, you can't just you you can't just have you know a, a big a, some some bronze something rusty and bronze and then try to put it up with gold paint to make it look better. And I think that's like the progress of African Americans in America. I think there's a lot of rust that's still there. That rust needs to be treated before you can move forward. And that's the biggest dilemma in African American community because you're not going to be able to progress without that. There's so many sick behaviors and useless skills that need to be unlearned. Like you need to move past the labor force and move forward to the ownership. What do you own as an African-American? What are you aspiring to? What are you doing? Is it your, what is it? It's ownership, it's entrepreneurship. That's the only way you can capitalize and make money. Like, can you, I can't name five African-American billion. I can't name three African-American billionaires that aren't rich off of entertainment. Robert F. Smith. Yeah, I can't. No, he's right. I can't. I can't. And that's sad. That's a problem. It's a big problem. We're going to get into it. And when I start to see this stuff and I start to speak about it, you know, to my friends and everything, people think I'm crazy about the education thing, you know, and I've said this on this podcast and I'll keep saying it again of, you know, we have handed over the education of our people to others. You know, and you look at a lot of other groups in this country, right? They still maintain and protect their culture. You know, yeah, they might go to public school during the week, but I know when I like I had a chance to work at the JCC, Jewish Community Centers, where I taught boxing, right? They have the Jewish Community Centers. They have their temples, right? They're doing all this kind of stuff to maintain uh, Jewish culture, you know, education classes, everything like as a culture, like this is how we do things. This is how we invest. This is how we save our money. This is how we do all this kind of stuff. When you think about the classroom, you know, you, you and I were talking about before we went live, how African-Americans have an identity crisis. I think that is built at home and I think is reinforced inside the classroom, you know, because like right now we're having conversations about there's this whole thing about critical race theory and what we're teaching in the classroom, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But at a certain point, you got to ask yourself, like, is it the government's responsibility to teach black Americans about themselves or is it black culture's responsibility to make sure that their kids understand who they are? And where they come from. And we've already been shown over the since of the America's founding, right? That are or the founding of the public education system, right? That's not their priority, right? They're, like you said, their priority is like the cookie cutter approach, right? They're not looking at us as black people, you know? And black people, I think a lot by and large, like we want to be seen as black. You know what I mean? Like it's stupid, right? When you think about race, but I just mean in a sense, see me for me. Yeah. You know, see past my beard, see past my hair, you know, let me be me. Let me be free. I don't want to be viewed as a problem. I don't want to be viewed as something that needs to get fixed, you know? And so this is important because when you start assigning books in class, 
when you start showing movies, right? And black students like agency, you know, or the only history they learn about themselves is that of slavery, mm-hmm. right? That is an oh, issue. Based history. Yeah. And then the, the fact that we're trying to prepare black people to compete in a society where they lack power and influence, right? Like, like how a black business owner should approach, how a black entrepreneur should approach starting his business, I think is a lot different sometimes than white entrepreneurs, especially when you know how much uh, the wealth gap, you know what I'm saying? Like black people don't have a lot of friends and family around, you know, our small businesses, where are we getting that money from? And this is where African immigrants have done a great job of you set up your susus, you actually invest in other people's businesses. This is not something that you have to go to the federal government for. This is something you go as a tribe and a community. Like that's the kind of stuff that we need to cultivate. And it's not happening in the public education system, nor should it be. And I'm not surprised, but we need to take ownership of it. It's generational wealth. That's another thing that you speak on. We, it's systemic. Like 10% of the wealth in America belongs to the African American community. It's so sad. It's bad. Like African Americans don't have money. Like this is good. It sounds bad coming out of my mouth, but that's just the honest truth. You don't, you don't control anything. We don't have money. We don't, you, you don't have any wealth. And that, that at root cause analysis, that's one of the major problems. You don't have access to the major components. Um, another thing back to the educational piece, Look at the 1965 Immigration Act. When we came over here, we were incentivized. The best and the brightest from Africa were incentivized yep. to come over here, right? And when we came over here, I put in my book. There's a there's a there's a segment where I talk about you know being told to play with the white kids, not just the black kids. Because when you come over here, it's programmed. You're you're told that African Americans are troublemakers. You know they always get in trouble. You know they have their their they you know they have their hair this way. They they wear their clothes baggy. They're doing X Y and Z. Don't hang with those kids. Assimilate to white culture because that's programmed even before you come to America. What's right and wrong? You're already told like you're you are already looking at the African African Americans in a pejorative light before you meet them. You already judge them. Immigrants already know exactly what they are. They're like nope, can't hang with these people. They're always in trouble. They make up 80% of the prisons. But why? You don't think about that when you're coming over here as an immigrant. You don't think why. Like, why are these, why is the African-American community so impoverished? Why are they not where they should be amongst their white counterparts? Why have they never been treated equally past Jim Crow, past all these policies that were put against them? What happened? You don't look at that. You just look at what's programmed to you. And that's avoid these folks. And we've been we've been chopping up. We see this is why this is what I love about this podcast. I bring guests on and I love it when you ask me questions, you know, uh, because sometimes, you know, people think that, you know, just because I'm the host. Right. Like I'm dictating it. But I love this kind of back and forth. But what I want to do, man, I want to hear your confession. Um, um, And I think I I like it, man. I want to hear your confession for the for the group. uh, We already said it out loud. Uh, My confession really is. I think the African-American community suffers from an identity crisis. You don't know where to belong. Are you African? What is an African-American? We talk about what is an African-American? That fundamentally, that just doesn't make sense. Like, are you African? Or are you American? You're, you're really neither. Like, what are you? Are, if you go to Africa right now and you're like, oh, my brother, I'm one of you. Africans are going to look at you like, oh, who's this guy? Are you, are you a rapper? Are you a bat? What are you? They're, they're, that's what they're going to look at you like. Who is the, you're not going to open, embrace you with arms. They're not. And in America, you're not embraced with open arms either. So you, you suffer from an identity crisis. And it's hard to improve, to, to better your situation yourself if you suffer from an identity crisis. Damn, that's deep. 
That is true. Um, I'll tell you, when I was growing up in Texas, you know, I used to always see like we would have like, you know, Juneteenth Day or something, right? Whether it's Juneteenth or some kind of holiday we're celebrating. And mind you, I'm in a Southern Baptist church. And I used to always think it was like funny when I saw people walking in with the dashikis, you know, and everything else. And I'm just like, yo, you're from America. Like, why are you wearing a dashiki? You know what I'm saying? You grew up in East Texas. Pride of the culture. I didn't even know. You get what I'm saying? So when we see ourselves in our native garments, right? When we see ourselves in our native elements, it's so foreign to us, you know, that we can look at it as kind of funny, you know? And it wasn't until I started hanging out with like African immigrants, to be honestly, whether from um, Nigeria um, or Ghana, right? And I started to notice how they dress different, you know, how like a lot of their professional dress right? is a lot different than our cookie cutter professional dress. And that's when it started to make me kind of just like examine everything I taught, just like how I've been viewing the world. Um, and just how like, you know, so distance we really are from like the culture, you know, black, I don't even know what to call it, right? Because we're saying a lot of stuff, we're saying African American, we're saying black, we're saying black folks, you know. Um, but this is why I started this podcast. This podcast is Confessions of a Native Son. And what do I mean by Native Son? I'm referencing those of us born here, descendants of slavery, essentially, you know, that don't bring this other identity, that don't bring this other culture with us directly. Um, And so on this platform and through my own learning outside of it, I'm able to learn and grow to just understand, you know, where I kind of fit into the world to going back to what you said, like that, not necessarily like an identity crisis, just a, a deep understanding for the self, you know, um, as opposed to what other people tell you. It's like, no, let me go out and let me seek and let me learn. So what I want to do, AK, I got to go ahead and give a shout out to our sponsors for the day. And then we're going to do a deep dive on, on your book. All right. So uh, our sponsors for today include Dope Coffee, a lifestyle company that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. Shout out to Mike Lloyd and his beautiful wife, Michelle, and the team down at uh, in Atlanta and Real Dope Coffee, man. Be sure to go ahead and head over to their website, www.realdope.coffee, and place your order today. It's Black-owned. It's veteran-owned. You know, be sure to show them some love. And uh, next, I got to give a shout out to Sincerely Bade, a woman-led company that's Harlem-based and specializes in handcrafted body care that relieves, restores, and relaxes. Their products help you feel better naturally. If you're suffering from aches and pains and don't want over-the-counter drugs or prescription medication, be sure to check them out. They have baths, they have balms, bath salts, and oils to relax the body and soothe the soul. Head over to www.sincerelybade.com. That's B-A-D-E. And again, you know, I love being able to shout out small businesses on this platform, especially small businesses close to me. You know, the one, uh, Dope Coffee is run by my boy Mike. And then Sincerely Bade is run by my beautiful girlfriend, uh, Simone. So I greatly appreciate if you checked out both their websites, um, purchase some of their products and uh, let us know what you think. And if you go to Sincerely Bade, you know, let her know um, that you you found her through the podcast. She might hook you up with a discount. All right, AK. Now let's jump into the theme of today's show, which is the dangers of a single story uncovering stereotypical bias between African-American, between African immigrants and African-Americans. So I think the first thing, right, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but take us back to your upbringing, you know, and where you, you, you've talked about it. You really talk about it in the book, 
But talk to us about like your upbringing and when you really started to see that African-American divide beyond just like, don't just play with the black kids. I didn't start seeing it until high school. That's the first time I noticed that I was, so you get teased throughout school by, by, my, by my African-American counterparts getting called an African booty scratcher and stuff like that. But uh, in all seriousness, uh, I didn't start noticing it until high school. So I was like, okay, I'm African. I'm not African-American. There's a big difference. There's a big divide. I wasn't born here. Like, I'm, my parents are not the descendants of slaves. My parents are not the descendants of Jim Crow. They didn't have to go through that. They had challenges that they faced. They faced the Biafran War. I'm not saying their life was easier, but they didn't face the same things African-Americans faced. And I didn't. I don't have those challenges. I don't have those barriers that I have to jump over. I don't have those things holding me down. I don't. I feel like African-Americans, the, the main difference, the, the biggest thing I saw was, I talked about it in my, my book, I had a friend whose aspirations weren't even to go to college. And then I have another friend whose aspiration was to be the first person in his family to graduate from college. That was his, his greatest, like, oh, man, if I go to college on a scholarship, parents are going to be so proud. His parents threw him a party. He went to the Air Force Academy, Marco, and my good friends. They were so proud of him. Whereas, you know, it's expected that you go to university. It's expected that you not only go to university, you go to university and you get a degree. You get a worthy degree. And then after the university, you go to grad school and you get another degree. It's an expectation in African American, in the African community. It, it's not, I don't know if you've ever seen memes, but you come home with a 98, your parents will say, where are the other two points? It's serious. They expect you to do that. It's not something that you're rewarded for. It's an expectation. So I think expectation management really guides what you can do and what you can do. Our expectations in my household and African households are you're either the best or you're nothing. Hearing you talk like this is funny for me because when you're younger, all right, and you don't understand like the world, whatever, I think sometimes for us as black people, we can get offended when we hear white people talk like this. You know, the sense of like, um, and I think like, like I'm, I'm coming to the point now where like, I keep referencing Star Wars, right? Siths are dangerous because Siths deals with absolutes. There really are no absolutes, you know? And the fact of the matter is like, are you saying that like white conservatives are right? That like black people embody this idea of, you know, the man is after me, you know what I mean? Right? Like, um, not necessarily like this excellence or this piece, like the expectation that they're living up to their expectations, which is why sometimes I think like people get offended when you talk, the victim mentality is what they call it. You know, this idea that like black people embody this like victim mentality, which is one of the things that holds them back. And I think for us, right, I'm speaking again, as like a native son. When we hear that coming from that group, when we hear that coming from others outside the group, outside the community, sometimes it can feel offensive because it's almost as if they're neglecting the, the, all the shit they've done to keep us down. You know, everything from, like I said, slavery to Jim Crow to racial discrimination. But I also understand in a sense of like, if you do embody and view the world through that lens, that it can potentially hold you back, you know? So it's like, we're saying, like you guys are saying the same thing. And I just think that like, because of who it comes from sometimes, People get offended by it. Mike, there's a lot of immigrants who are conservatives. I'll tell you that. There's a whole host of them. I, there's a whole host of immigrants who are very conservative in their, in their political leanings. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty much conservative, to be honest, right? Like, I think, I believe in the power of the individual, you know, to choose and make decisions for himself. And I think that a lot of responsibilities for our community should fall outside of the federal government, you know, um, just because of history. I'm a history guy, right? And you look at, like, everything from Pro, you know, to all the, the, the war on drugs, to all these things that have happened to us. It's like Black people... You know, we should have the least amount of trust in the federal government, if I'm being honest. You know, uh, we should do for us and look after us. But a lot of people feel like we can't do anything without without them. And it's probably weird for people to hear me say this is like a Naval Academy grad, Marine officer, you know, somebody that has basically benefited from the government, had my schooling paid for. But I just meant in a sense of like moving the culture forward at scale. Given everything that has happened to us, you know, I just think that like, you know, we need to. I think there is an over-reliance on the federal government to make sure that like black culture survives and thrives in the long term. And I don't think that's something that should be outsourced from the culture. I think that's the culture's responsibility. I think that's black folks' responsibility. Otherwise, I think we risk becoming um, extinct altogether. You know, and Claude Anderson talks about it. We're a labor class. You look across the board, black America is still a labor class. Um, and so it's like, how do we stand a chance to get out of that? And I think the only way you can do it is when you start pulling your knowledge and resources together in order to move the group, the body forward. Yeah, I agree. He talks about blacks are the only people, only group in America who don't have neighbor, who don't have community, who don't have communities. They don't have a, a sense of community. They don't have communities. They have have a call them residential neighborhoods. Yeah, hood. Um, they, they took out the neighbor because you know, nobody wants to live next to them. So we just got hood now. Yeah, that's that, that's sad. Back back to your uh, to to the comment that you made about um, about having the the survive the the victim mentality, the African American community. Do I personally do I think that's true to a sense? Yes, I certainly do think it's true to a sense, and that's due to programming. Again, that's due to programming. That's due to woe is me. The white man's got me, but the white man does got you, man. Um. But you have, we, we, I keep saying we, but the African-American community has to do some heavy lifting for themselves, but they need the help of the federal government. It needs to happen. Like they need to meet halfway. It's the only way that this is going to change because the wealth gap is widening. People are saying, oh, Kanye is a billionaire now. Things are good. No, the wealth gap is widening. White folks are getting richer. Immigrants are getting richer. Black folks are not getting richer. (laughs) They're not. Um, just being, look at uh, labor statistics. That's it's quantifiable. I think for that to happen, man, you got to meet each other halfway. So let me ask you this. I want to go back to, to you in high school, right? What were you hearing in the classroom that was like, that made you want to distinguish yourself? That's like, stop talking about me like that. That's not me. You know, was it like negative talk, right? What was it that you were hearing in the classroom that made you say like, listen, I'm African. Stop classifying me as these African-Americans. It, it wasn't really something that made me not want to do that. I never like overtly like exerted, like don't classify me as this or that. Um, it was just more so cultural differences, man. Like going home with my friends and seeing how they live and seeing how I live and coming home and I'm like, what is the difference between everybody that I know that's African and everybody that I know that's African-American? It's just expectation management. So in high school, Everybody I went to senior high school or kids got stabbed or were getting jumped and, you know, things like that. It was it was pretty, it was a rowdy high school. 
And you see that and you're going to school every day. Like, what is the difference? What is the valence? Why is this inner city school like this? Why are these kids in inner city school like this? And why is the private school where all the rich white folk go to, why is it like this? What's the difference? That was really the defining thing I saw. I was like, wow, this is, and it's sad for me to say this, but that was the main thing. What, what about your, your peer group? Who are you hanging out with? Cause in the book you talk about it, that your parents were like, don't hang out with the black kids, you know, hang out with the white kids, but clearly, right. You've been influenced by African-American culture at some point. So like, cause mm-hmm. it sounds like everything you're saying, to be honest, from like a class perspective, you have a lot more in common with more white middle-class, right. As opposed to a lot of your peers, you know, in school in the inner city. And so, you know, who are you hanging with? And if it was, what brought you into black culture? It it was black culture. Black. I was hanging with Americans. Yeah, I wasn't hanging with, you know, culturally classes. I, I, I would say I would, if you were looking at me on paper, I would identify as the, the, the middle-class white guy, above middle-class white guy. Um, but the people I was, I, was, I was around hanging with, the people I quote-unquote uh, clung to in high school were African-Americans because we played sports together. They would give me rides, things like that. They would give me rides home. Just the African-American culture was something that I got along with. And also I was grouped in marginal, not marginal, I was grouped with African-American culture, with African-Americans. You know, people are seeing me already assume African-American right there. You know, these are, these are people you're going to cling to. And those are people who adopted me because the white Americans are also quote unquote afraid of me. Like they see a big black guy walking towards them, no? Yeah. Outside of just, you know, don't hang with the don't hang with the black kids, also hang with the white kids, right? What other comments do you hear from African immigrants with regards to African Americans? Like what other stereotypes have you seen? I mean, have you heard expressed in, you know, in these communities? Because the reason I ask is I have a friend who is like Mormon, right? He's a white guy, he's Mormon. And so he's really different from a lot of other when he was a Marine officer, he's a lot different from uh, his peers, you know, and because people view him as like them, right. They would say all kind of stuff in front of him, right. Not even realizing that like he was Mormon, you know? And the reason I'm asking you to say it is that like, I think that because you're African, you're an, you're an immigrant, right. People look at you, you know, you're able to basically get insight that me as an African-American are not able to get inside the household of African family. Yeah. Uh, just, I mean, like all immigrants, I think this all bodes with all immigrants when they look at the African-American community. They all look at the African-American community negatively. They think African-Americans are lazy. They don't want to work for themselves. They don't want to work hard. They won't pull themselves out of poverty. It's simple as that. It's harsh to say. And I'm also a little bit ashamed saying this out of, out of my mouth, but it's true. That's what immigrants think about the African-American community. Is that right? Of course not. But that's what they believe. That's what the stereotypical biases from immigrants' perspective is African Americans in America are lazy. So what happens when African immigrants gain power and influence thinking this way already, right? Are we going to perpetuate the cycle that has already existed in this country of Black inferiority? And now that we have, you know, Black immigrants in these positions, they're going to treat us the same as white people? Yeah, of course. I mean, you think about it. And I would say the same thing about, you know, when African when uh, when African Americans do get power and do get into certain positions, you you are the term self-hate. <laughs> like, um, 
that's perpetuated as well. Like you, 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 you already have this mentality, this programming of what you want to express and the type of people that you want to be around you. And as an immigrant, you're already going to say, okay, I already know what the African American community is about. So you're going to surround yourself with a cabinet full of like-minded people who are going to be other immigrants or other, or, or the majority, the white males. That's what you're going to feel comfortable around. Because you're not going to get the chance to really explore African-Americans and get to know African-Americans unless you've lived amongst African-Americans. You talked about how the civil rights movement um, opened doors for African people. Can you expand upon that for our audience? It did. The civil rights movement came, the civil rights movement and immigration acts, they came and they essentially leapfrogged the African-American community, the African community in front of the African-American community. Because they came, Jim Crow is done. All of that is done, right? And then Africans are coming over here, not having to deal with that. I mean, there's still racism, but those policies that restrict um, people of color, that, that's over. Because now it's a quote-unquote progressive era where they want people of color to win. But the specific people of color they want to win are people with immigrants, immigrant backgrounds. That's who they want to win, not the people who've already been here. And the people who've already been here can't win because they already have those shackles of Jim Crow on them. So how are you going to tell me, go ahead and progress and build when you just burn down Black Wall Street? You're not going to have the vision and foresight to move forward. What makes you so, what made you want to be vocal about this stuff in your book? You know, and what has the response been from like your family and people in your culture? Because you talk about, you know, the stuff that your parents told you when you were younger and you're kind of shedding a light on how they view black people. And especially in this time when there's supposed to be this like unity. Right. Like I call it the post George Floyd era when Eric, when America found out we were all black. Right. Because before people didn't see color. Right. They're like, oh, racism, all that stuff doesn't exist. I don't see color. And all of a sudden George Floyd happens and people are calling all their black friends just kind of checking on them, making sure they're okay. You know, like for the first time, you've just like really seen them. So I'm curious to hear like, what has your fame, what, how has the response been to your book from those closest to you? So the response has been great. My, my parents have, are, you know, again, I had all of my friends were African-American growing up. So my parents, you know, loved my friends. Like they were my siblings, you know, they would let them sleep over and take them home, do whatever, pay their school, like everything, pay their school fees, sent them anything they needed. Um, but this came about again, as I watched the George Floyd video, like I was telling you, and I was outraged. So this was during quarantine, during COVID. And what I would do, what we would do is we would have a roundup with my, you know, with with my family and we would, you know, do church on the phone. Then after that, we would discuss everybody's week, how everything's going, what everybody's thinking about. And I made a comment. I said, wow, how have we negatively contributed to the African-American story? Are we because we were talking about racism in America and I was like, as immigrants, are we racist? And, you know, I had mixed reviews on the phone. Some people were like, yeah, no, nobody had ever really thought about it. Like, let's do a deep dive on ourselves. You know, we always look at white people like white people are racist. But what about us as immigrants? What have we done wrong? And it, it takes that conversation. It takes that that sentiment of what have we done wrong and how can we do better to do better? So that happened, and we had two months worth of discussion about this, my family and I, about, wow, what can we do better? Like seeing our flaws, me, like everybody, you know, seeing your flaws, seeing how have you negatively contributed to the African-American community? Of course, you, you've had kids come over your house, spend a night, you help them with tuition, help them with everything, but 
are you do you have this implicit bias this this uh this explicit this implicit bias do you have it in you is it something that you know when you see a black person coming towards you you lock your doors do we have that and it's something i had to explore while writing this book and the the feedback i've gotten so far has been excellent i mean i've sold a lot of copies and just to my family alone they love it they love every sentiment of it they love having that conversation they love sharing it with their friends and other immigrants like what can we do to better the african-american community because this is on us too in the book you reference a speech that kind of inspired it the dangers of a single story by what was her name chimamanda chimamanda gazi adj talk about that speech and what what it what it meant to you to to kind of hear it so chimamanda um huge inspiration in my life uh, amazing human um, and she she talked about the danger of a single story. This is my book is titled. I got her permission, of course. You know, it's the title of my book that. Um, and we're talking, and she's talking about how when you look at somebody from one lens, you don't really understand them. You you like us Africans coming to America, we hear the white man's story of the African Americans, but we don't take our time to explore the African American story ourselves. You look at Christopher Columbus, and you look at the Native Americans. Where does that arrow start and where does that arrow stop? That paints a whole different story. You look at any situation, you look at somebody committing something, an act of uh, a horrible act, and you see them in a horrible act, but you don't see what happened before that. That's the dangers of a single story. You only see one view, one vantage of a certain people or demographic. You don't see the whole story. And then you go ahead and make your assumptions. So that's why it's always important to draw your conclusions only after you've sat, you've listened, you've done your research and you've got your own information. Because if something is misconstrued, you could be facing hundreds of years of, of what's going on right now with the African-American community. So how do you think we fix this? Right. How do you what have you been saying to like as you guys have been having these family discussions? Right. Like what are some solutions for not contributing you know, to the issues faced by black folks in this country? You know, like how can we and for us as black folks, you know, what are your thoughts on like how we can move forward together as a collective? So for me, for my I'll speak, I guess I'll speak for the the Nigerian community in this. It's number one, recognizing bias, recognizing we all do have implicit or explicit bias in some way, form or fashion. We all do. The first thing you do is you recognize it and you talk about it. You put it out there and it's open. It's not something that's taboo anymore to talk about anywhere within your, your coworkers or anywhere. You talk about bias because it does exist. That's the first way is identifying you do have the bias. And then moving forward, I don't think we need to go ahead and offer special programs to our African-American counterparts. I don't think we need to do any of that. But we need to recognize when dealing with certain people that this is a person this is a black person. This is an Asian person. This is a white person. And just because you see the color of their skin, that shouldn't define anything they are. But you do see the color of their skin, but you need to learn what's in their heart, who they are. So it kind of boils down to just trying your best to mitigate bias, trying your best to mitigate. The, like you have a beard, Mike, I'm sitting here talking to you. I could be like, oh, you know, he has a beard. Oh, I've heard about people with beards. They're X, Y, and Z. But that's not important. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't automatically assume you should never do that. I think for me, right, like one thing I've been diving deep is, is just I've just been reading a lot. Right. And I've been trying to learn more about like these African centered educations to understand the difference between like what we're getting taught in the public school and how we're viewing ourselves versus like 
what African students are getting taught, the sense of tribe and a sense of community. And I think like, I, I do believe this, right? Like, I think that's one of the ways that we can start to kind of self-correct to build confidence because African education is all about building confidence in someone, you know, learning for the self, learning for, um, you know, just kind of like, like that you have a lot of different schools out there. Instead of trying to force curriculum down people, it's like, how do we survive and thrive basically? You know, like what are our traditions that we're passing along to each generation? You know, this is how we do things here. Like you said, we don't, like you talked about your household, like you go to school, right? Like it's not the exception, it's the norm, right? Because like, that's how we do things here. Like that kind of stuff was instilled in you at an early age. Um, and I'm assuming that that was more from the family and the community, less opposed to like this government entity coming in and saying like, hey, we're going to accept we're going to set the expectation um, for you and your people. The other thing I think we need to have is like just more conversations like this, you know, to just kind of work, kind of work through it. Right. Just kind of talk through it. But like, and I don't know if this is like a pessimistic attitude. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your feedback. The more I dive into this race stuff, right. From a higher level, whether it's the critical race theories, the intersectionalities, right. All this kind of stuff. Like what I have come in, what I've come to determine is that at the end of the day, again, people just want to be seen for who they are, you know? And it's like, it's not fair to put you in a box over here when you don't fit inside the box. Just like, it's not fair to put me in a box over here. You know, at the end of the day, like people get offended by it, but it's like, yo, this person, like I am black. I am a black male. You know, I am, Af I am a native born, you know, native son. You know, I'm a veteran. I'm all these different boxes. Right. So to look at me through the lens of everyone else, Right. We all have our own uniqueness. We all have our own identity. And so it's like, how can I have space for me? You get what I'm saying? And I think the only real answer to that is this just embracing the individual. You know, people just want to be seen like, you know, as individuals for who they are, you know, because even in the group. Right. We have people who are having this conversation. They could be like, I don't identify with these two brothers and that's fine. You know, good for you. That's that's perfect. Right. You know, because they don't want to be thrown into this box. Um, and so that's why when at the end of the day, I think like, like sometimes this stuff is just, it's like, we're, it's kind of stupid, right? Like this race stuff and just to the point to where it's so just convoluted and now we got to like go deep. Like, again, like I got to one up someone to kind of talk about like who had it worse, you know, no, no, African-Americans had it worse. No, Africans, like all this kind of stuff, man. Um, but I'm just, I'm just trying to grow and learn as much about it as I can, which is why I was excited to read your book. Yeah, I really appreciate that, man. So before, um, before we wrap up, is there any other uh, topics you want to discuss while you're on the platform? Uh, that, that's, I mean, we really covered a lot in, in this short time, man. But uh, uh, I, I'm just writing a lot of notes down here, just snippets from my book of, of things I want to share and just my favorite parts of this book, man. What is your favorite part? That, uh, the book. Uh, I'll share one of my favorite my favorite blurbs. It's uh, African immigrants are also thought to be better off than African Americans because they come from nations where the majority of the citizens are black. Thus, they didn't have to grow up suffering from identity crisis or stigmatization for being a minority in a predominantly white nation. It's true that African immigrants will never completely understand what it's like to be an African American. Even if we tried, we cannot possibly understand the psych psychological wound that is passed on from generation to generation and impacts how African Americans experience everyday life in America. That's like, 
that 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 blurb right there was one of my favorites. Is, is I you know I, I jotted down a piece of paper at the library when I was writing my thesis, and I was like, look, like that that boils it down right there. That's that sentiments is is how I feel day in and day out. I'll never understand what it's like to be African American in America. You'll never understand what it's like to be African. You won't. You will not. But it's like understanding, man. Understanding. Trying to understand. When you think about racism in this country and the plight of black people post George Floyd, all the stuff that's getting brought up, everything from police brutality, discrimination, you know, like we talked about the lack of power and influence, right? Like, are you optimistic for black Americans or black folks? Or are you, you know, what is your view on like the future for us? Mike, until black people in America can actually get some money, nothing is going to change. Like until African-Americans in America can get their own money, nothing is going to change. People are talking about black banks are thriving more now than ever. Until African-Americans are able to build their own community in America and build wealth, nothing will ever change. Because the only thing people respect is wealth. only thing people respect is money. And I'm not like money hungry. I don't think I need to be a billionaire to change anything. That's not my aspirations or goals. But there needs to be more people than Jay-Z and Kanye. Like, why are all of the African-American heroes entertainers? I know you've heard this before, but why? Until that changes, until that switches, until there's actually a voice for the African-American community other than Kanye and Jay-Z and, and, and people like that. Until you, I don't know if you guys need another Al Sharpton. I, I don't know who it is. There's no leaders. There's no MLKs. There's no Malcolms. There's there's nothing the African American community. Well, I disagree. Right? That's I all. think there are leaders like that, and they're like guys like the Claude Andersons of the world, and you know the black bookstores. You walk into the black bookstores, there's tons of authors in there. I think it's like who does a society choose to push up, you know, and promote, right? So, like, if I want to find Claude Anderson, I got to go looking for Claude Anderson. That's not something that's going to come across my desk inside a classroom. And the thing you talk about in terms of entertainment, why is he so good? huh? Why is it so hidden? Why is, Claude, why is Claude Anderson never promoted or talked about? You got to understand that if you go against the main narrative, right, and you question, yeah. uh, if, if you go against the main narrative, like, they're not going to fund that research. Like, why would Harvard fund research on, like, why Harvard has been racist? You know, Harvard's not going to fund research on the low number of African-Americans. You know, they don't want to, like, you know what I mean? Like, education is political, right? You're trying to push a certain narrative. And when people go against that narrative, it's less favorable, right? So, yeah, you can write about it, but it's like they're not going to necessarily make it easy for you. You can understand what I'm saying? And at the end of the day, right, like, you know, they have donors and, you know, people that support them that could get a little ruffled by some of the stuff these scholars write. And it's not that it's not true. It's just that, like, you know, they don't want to support that kind of research. And so they pick and choose who we put in front of us. And then when you talk about the entertainment industry and the sports industry, let's just look at it from an economic perspective, right? You need money to make money, okay? Now, if I want to go out and fucking start a venture capital firm or something, right, or get seed funding for my startup, to be honest, like, a lot of money is pumped into the music and entertainment industry. You know, a lot of these rappers that are coming up, they can't afford to distribute their CDs all across the country, all across the world, right? Who, who pays for that? The record labels do. You know, the managers do all that kind of stuff. Right. So there's money being invested into the infrastructure that allows entertainers to basically like, you know, 
if, if I'm a person as an individual, as a business, right, there's money to be got, you know, going through that route. It might not be a lot of money initially, but let's be honest, right? Like if you're a hot rapper or whatever, maybe you get a deal, maybe you don't, you know, but let's be honest, there's money out there. People are always looking for, you know, that kind of talent. And then the same thing with sports, right? Look how much money is getting invested in sports between the AAUs of the world, between the, the universities. I mean, you went to Navy, right? You know, Navy, Navy's got some stuff too. Let's be honest, right? They've used guys up for athletes, you know? And then the minute they, they were, you know, guys got in trouble their entire time at the Naval Academy. It was fine as long as they were playing in the football games, right? Then what happens after their last game of the season, now we want to outboard them, you know, outprocess them, right? When they've been doing that the entire time, while they were in at the Naval Academy, you know? So there's just, there's sports brings a certain number of, of money and power, it has a low level of money and power to it. And there's infrastructure there. And so I think when we see it, right, like we see black entertainers, you know, we see black athletes, not like onesies and twosies. We're talking about at scale, you know, black startup founders, right? Not necessarily at scale, you know? And so I think that's why. I think there's a pathway that is available and it's been shown to be made available, you know, for us. I agree. I, 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 I would say I, I agree with that sentiment you're saying, but I still think that there needs to be more black billionaires, not in entertainment, man. I still think that needs to be no. a thing. No, we listen, man, hundred percent. We agree. I agree that there needs to be more black billionaires, but like, look at where we're moving now. Right. Like less than one percent of venture capital in this country has gone to African-Americans. And then we just talked about what yeah. is an African-American. Hell, if 80 percent of the VC, the checks getting cut are going to Nigerian-Americans or African immigrants or Indian or, you know, who knows what they're classifying as black these days? You know, to be yeah. honest. Right. So if we know we're not getting the capital um, to support growth. Right. And then the other thing, too, is like who owns your business, to be honest, you know, like somebody invest in your company, right? Do you own it? You know, if they own 100% no. ownership, right? Um, so it's a, it's, there needs to be more black billionaires, but I don't necessarily know if that's going to fix the issue. I don't know if they ever can really fix the issue. I just think we can, I don't know, man, we just got to come up, we just got to come up with a better way to ensure our people survive and thrive and whatever that means, whether it's education, whether it's financial. It's, it's, a, it's dialogue. Dialogue. Starts with dialogue. Yeah. Starts with dialogue. Educating, like letting people know, um, understanding, like limiting that bias. So when a kid with dreads does come to get a job at your at your firm that which you inherited from your dad, because you know, your people own 80% of the wealth in, in, in America, you know, you'll hire him just or her because, you know, based on their metrics that they're the best candidate. And you won't look at them and say, oh, this person has dreads. No. So Hopefully the next generations will do better. So, AK, before I let you go, we've got listeners all across the country, all across the world tuning in. What would you like to leave them with with regards to your opinion on the dangers of a single story? The dangers of a single story is probably one of the most riveting books that you'll ever read. If you really, I'm writing three books. This is the first one. Um, this is really an overview on biases between African-Americans and Africans in America. If you care about that, if you want to learn about that, read it, read it. If you don't think it's good, let me know. If you think it's great, let me know. Where can people find you at? 
You can find me on Instagram with love, AK underscore um, Facebook, Jude Akpunku. I'm not very active on social media. Uh, change is more active, my clothing brand. So change.change.org, change.com. You can find out as well. Change without the, without the A. Um, my book is on Amazon, Dangerous of a Single Story. It's out right now. It's doing great. Please go ahead and, and you know, Purchase it, read it, support. I'm donating all the proceeds to my to my uh, my youth empowerment center back in Nigeria as well. I mean, he get AK back on to talk about his dad because we didn't even get to go do a deep dive, you know, a deep dive on. That. But man, I appreciate you coming on the platform. Be sure y'all to check out his book. I've read it. I owe him a review, and I'll make sure I get that. I'll make sure I'll make that happen for everyone else out there. If you haven't done so, be sure to subscribe and support this podcast by giving us five stars and leaving a review on iTunes. Also, for this show to anyone on your network who you feel identifies with the subject matter, be sure to also head over to confessionsofanativeson.com and sign up for our newsletter. If you like this type of dialogue and are interested in booking me to speak at your organization, you can contact me through the website. Just click the tab that says book me to speak, fill out your contact information, and someone from my team will get back to you as soon as possible. Order some dope coffee at www.realdope.coffee got to start supporting our own businesses y'all it's black owned and veteran owned and is the epitome of economic empowerment don't just talk about it be about it by heading over to www.realdope.coffee and showing mike and the team uh some love and then lastly check out sincerely body to order some handmade pain relief wellness products again i know the ceo of the company she just so happens to be my girlfriend so i'll put in a good word for you until next time everyone Peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase our dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man.